Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, diagnosing the problems of Canadian healthcare with a bit of hope on how we can fix them. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Just a few days before Christmas, so we're going to dispense with this idea of trying to keep track of all the negative, nasty things that are happening in the world. We've done enough of that this year. And I want to spotlight an important issue that is more relevant than ever this year, but also getting spoken about less than it needs to. And that is the dire state of Canadian healthcare. We've talked about this in a couple of forms in the past with the famous Camby case that's going on out in British Columbia, a case that really determines whether access to a waiting list accounts for access to health care. But the problem with healthcare in Canada and the discussion of it is that so often people are focused on the politics of it and not the actual patients, not the people who should matter the most. As it stands, we have a healthcare system in which the government virtually monopolizes in most areas the quality of care you can get. But this means care is also rationed. And again, access to a wait list is not access to care. One of the big problems we have is that so many people view the idea of even discussing it as akin to grabbing onto the third rail, which is why a lot of people in politics, even those who probably think that, yeah, deregulating or getting government to back off a bit would be a good idea, people on the right don't want to go anywhere near it. Well, we never shy away from tackling the contentious subjects on this show, so it is with that that I want to talk to Dr. Sean Watley, who is also the former head of the Ontario Medical Association, but more notably right now, is the author of the new book, When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How how Canadian Medicare is failing. Dr. Watley, great to talk to you. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Thank you, Andrew. So this is, again, a, a book that really melds politics and medicine in a way, but you're also trying to separate the two, it seems. Yeah, I'm so glad that you identified that. Actually, most of what we talk about, especially when you're looking at headlines and you hear about this crisis and that crisis, is really at the level of care and coordination of care. So how did you experience what you experienced when you went to the emergency department? Did you get the care you need? You needed? Did you have to wait a long time? Did you have to go to the walk-in clinic first or your family doctor first and then run here, there, and everywhere? So it's all about care and coordination of care. I think we need to have a deeper discussion at the level of culture and concepts. And so I, I put both parts in the book. You need to have the stories, you need to talk about care and the disasters, but you really need to dig deeper. And that's where this book comes in. I know your previous book, which you've identified this as being really part of a, a trilogy after, covered wait times specifically. And I, I wanted to ask you if the problem goes beyond wait times when you're looking at what the failings are of the healthcare system, because that's, I think, the most poignant for a lot of people. That's the one they notice. That's the one that governments, when they say they're fixing it, tend to try to use as the predominant metric. Yeah, so great. I'm really glad that you brought that up. You know, people have heard uh, uh, just Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin's famous line from the Chiuli decision in 2005, where she said, access to a waiting list is not access to health care. But if you look just a few lines up in her ruling, she, she says this line, um, waiting times under the Medicare system are, and then she puts this next three words in special quotation marks, real and intentional. 
And so it seems like we put a lot of emphasis on the real part. And uh, Kai High, Canadian Institute of Health Information, has done a great job of tracking wait times, reporting wait times. I think we have much more work to do there. But we haven't had that discussion about the intentionality of it. Someone actually decided to create this system, to run the system such that people wait. Other countries have this discussion up front. So in the United Kingdom, the NHS addressed this head on in the 1960s. And now they're very comfortable talking about the R word, rationing. It, they write white papers about it. They write books about it. Whereas in Canada, we're not there yet. And I think patients need to realize that it wasn't just a special event that made things busy for them. It wasn't a particular rush on MRIs that makes them wait for 10 months. Someone actually planned this. And that's where the book gets into the ideas that, um, you know, who who says it was okay for someone to plan that in the first place? Who says it's okay for a group of really smart people to decide when you need care versus you and your doc and your nurses and the team that you're working with? So that's where we try to dig deeper, that real and intentional. And I think uh, Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin nailed it in 2005 with that comment. And you address this in the book very well when you talk about people that might be on a bed in a hallway waiting for health care. And you say that when the doctor or the nurse isn't coming, it's not necessarily just because they're tied up, but because someone has, as you've just alluded to there, made a decision that prevents money from having there be a, an extra doctor or nurse who can actually help that patient. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think what we need to do is to have a fearless, dispassionate discussion about how socialized medicine has actually delivered on our dreams for it. Did it live up to providing what we were hoping it would provide for patients? Or have the ideas that are baked into the system actually led to anti-patient policies, which often deny care and dignity to patients? And just a quick comment about the word socialized medicine. So, you know, Jim Carrey was on Bill Maher's show about two years ago. And, and he said, okay, I'm, I'm a Canadian, okay? He said, we have socialized medicine. And he went on to describe how wonderful it is and how important it is as a Canadian to have this thing called socialized medicine. I, I, I mentioned this not because I agree with his comments, but I wanted to highlight the fact that he made no apology for calling it socialized medicine. Socialism <laughs> is back. You know, a Harris, a Harris uh, poll in 2019 showed that 50%, actually more than 50% of voters under the age of 38 would prefer to live in a socialist country. So we don't have to shy away from using that term socialized as a descriptive term now. We're not trying to criticize someone. We're just trying to be descriptive. And so I, need, I think we need to look at socialized medicine itself and ask, how's it doing for patients? That's actually an interesting point you just raised there, because I don't hear it talked about as socialized by its defenders in Canada. The term they use, and I think I even used this in my preamble, was universal, because that's how Canadians view the system. And for any number of reasons that you address in the book and that I've covered on the show and that I've experienced in my own life, the system is not universal. But you are correct that it does change it slightly, and I think people's perception, if you use that term, socialized, which is really at its core, what it's supposed to be. Right. So I'm so glad that you gave me the opportunity to expand on that because um, universal care, you can get universal care many different ways. I think Canadians are very supportive of insurance, right? We love insurance. We're insured for just about everything. You can even insure mm -hmm. your pets. You can insure your cows and, and all the rest. So we love insurance. And I think it would be wise to be insured against 
uh, um, medical care or, or, or catastrophic illness, that sort of thing, or even regular regular care. So let's move the insurance part out of the way. We can provide care for everyone, a universal approach, without saying the only way to do it is with the government approach. Mm-hmm. So we'll move that to the side. You know, Tommy Douglas, um, uh, he, he was the greatest Canadian, right? He was voted the greatest Canadian a while back and the father of Medicare by some people. In 1979, he was at the SOS Medicare conference. So the, the, the funding taps had been turned off by the federal government and everyone was really worried Medicare was in crisis. He said, we all knew that there were two phases in Medicare. The first phase was to remove the barrier of payment between patients and care. But he said the second phase is much more difficult. He said the second phase, and he said, we've been talking about this in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. The second phase requires a redesign of their delivery systems. So we need to completely remake how patients get care. What is the focus of the system? Do we focus on acute care or prevention and team care and that sort of thing? So that's where you get into socialized medicine, where you take the state um, assuming, or I would argue usurping, I didn't use that word in the book, but I'm using it here now, taking control to try to rationally allocate care based on central planning ideas. Well, that's radically different from the way doctors and nurses think at the bedside. When we're talking about the dollars and cents required, obviously there's a finite number. And one of my big frustrations outside of healthcare with government in general is oftentimes treating money as though it is this bottomless uh, this bottomless pit from which you can just keep drawing. But with healthcare, I, I'm of the mindset that if the government is to say, we are providing this and we are the only people that can provide this, you have to actually provide it. Now, we can talk about all the other ways we would rather see that system funded and, and, and constructed, but if government's going to do it, you have to do it effectively and efficiently. And what you've pointed out in the book here that I'm curious if you could elaborate on is how this kind of, in in your words, pits legislators against care providers. And I know that prior to uh, your role now with the McDonald-Laurier Institute, and uh, I know you're still practicing as a physician as well, you were actually at the helm of the Ontario Medical Association. So you've been in these very battles with governments. And explain how that really manifests, that pitting against that you talked about. And, and so we have an hour and a half for this television. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that is a fantastic com- question, Andrew, and, and really you, you nailed it on the head. Um, and so just I'll try to be as, as brief as possible because you've asked a very, very complex question. Essentially, medicine is about provision, priority, and patients, individual patients. So doctors and, and nurses as well, nursing's this way as well, I believe, where we focus on providing care. So someone's in front of us, how can we provide care? We focus on priority. So who is the sickest? And we'll pour everything into this one sick patient, even though they, we all know, you know, this person may die in the next 20 minutes. Doesn't matter, all hands on deck, try to save that life, mm-hmm. try to save that limb. And then finally, we're focusing on individual patients. Socialized medicine or the people who have to actually plan this whole thing on the on the civil service side, they're they're thinking about distribution of care. How is it distributed from province to province, from individual to individual, region, you know, urban, rural? Um, is it are we delivering an equal product? So is it is it equally distributed? And then finally, they're thinking at the population level. Are we doing what's best for populations as a whole? And those three sets of priorities on each side are often at loggerheads. And so I argue in the book that I think these are fundamentally opposed. 
In the 1970s, like you said, we had lots of cash. We had way more hospital beds than people to fill them. And it was wonderful. I mean, you, you got sick, boom, we got you in a bed. We got your, your, your diagnosis and your treatment. As, it, was, it was really, really nice. You never had to ask a bed allocating department whether or not you could accept a sick patient in transfer from another small outlying hospital. That ended in the late 1980s, certainly by the 1990s. You had to get approval before you could actually provide care. Hmm. But at the same time, there is something about this that has always been unsettling to me, which is that you've got uh, doctors and nurses who are not in a position to strike. So any grievances that doctors and nurses want to raise about very legitimate uh, concerns they have with their deal from the government, if you can even call it that, they're not like other professions that can say we're walking off the job. So at a certain point, they have to just deal with it and and move on. And, And that is what happened here. But are doctors and nurses sounding the alarm? about these issues? Because I I know that there are loud groups like Canadian Doctors for Medicare that will very loudly and vocally claim to speak for the healthcare industry against anything that they see as being a drift towards privatization. But when it comes to the system itself, where are the actual healthcare professionals on this? So you can't speak up. You'll get in trouble. I learned the hard way. I was certainly out of uh, out of residency, and I wrote a very short letter in our local paper. I mean, who reads our local paper, right? And I, I made the mis- two mistakes. Number one, I mentioned the Minister of Health. It was George Smitherman at the time. I, you know, Mr. Smitherman, would you like to come down to our hospital? And I named the name of our hospital. <laughs> and I said, let me show you the wait times in our diver- emergency department. Very, very short le- uh, letter, very small paper. The next day, our CEO of the hospital got a call from the Minister of Health and said, and he said, listen, I've been helping you guys out. Do you need me to come down there and fix those wait times for you? So that's the level of involvement and and sort of attention that hospitals uh, have when it comes to their staff or people who work in their hospitals actually saying anything. So. People are very, very scared about speaking out. If you have hospital privileges, I'd advise you don't speak out. Certainly if you're uh, a nurse, you, you you don't have the the liberty, the option to actually raise alarm. There's a great uh, case just a few years ago where a nurse actually just made a comment on Facebook and, and she's, uh, I don't know if that court case is even settled, but she got in big, big trouble, lost her job. Um, there was money involved. So just for simply saying, hey, my relative didn't really get proper care. And hmm. she was the one who could really see what was proper care because she's a nurse. She knows what, what good nursing care looks like. So, um, yes, people want to speak out, but really, unless you're speaking out saying the system is great and this is why we need more of it, you need to be cautious. Now, to be clear, I'm not just trying to bash the system. I'm trying to ask, I think we have a great opportunity to opportunity to improve what we have. And that's the focus we need to have. You know, how have we done so far? But most importantly, how can we make it better? Where can we go from here? The first step in that process is diagnosis. So this book is focused on diagnosis. And diagnosis is the hardest part about getting to treatment. To a lot of people, though, fixing it, it just involves throwing more money at it. And, and we spoke earlier about rationing. And, and when you have the conversation framed in those terms, some people might think it's, okay, well, just turn on the tap at full speed and let the money flow and, and the problems will resolve themselves. And, and that's the concern I have when I do hear sometimes from healthcare professionals is that there seems to be this idea that, you know, if you just kind of unlimit or delimit the money, it's all going to make the problems go away. What's your response to that? And is that the prevailing sentiment among your colleagues in healthcare that the issue is just more money's needed? 
Well, well, certainly that's what um, not only people working within healthcare, but the general public has heard this over and over. You you hear it so many times about cuts, cuts, cuts. I've said, you know, I've complained about cuts of, uh, publicly many, many times. And certainly irrational cuts are not the way to go. And I'm not suggesting we need cuts now. There, More money always seems to help. But will more money solve it? Absolutely not. We've been through this cycle numerous times. The biggest uh, infusion of cash happened in the early 2000s uh, with the federal government. Um, you know, a fix for a generation, I believe, was how uh, uh, Paul Martin said it. And I haven't seen that that actually fixes care because we need to. So we talk about care and coordination of care. That's what we think we're fixing. But we need to actually address the culture underneath it and then the concepts that feed that culture. So culture is just something... For example, in, in your office, let's say all meetings start at five minutes late. Well, then that's the culture in your office. That's the accepted norms of behavior. We have a whole bunch of norms of behavior in our system, which include it's okay to make people wait and it's okay to 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 uh, push people off uh, for 10 months for a referral to orthopedics. It's okay to get people seen in 10 days if it's a workplace injury. So we have all these norms that are okay, and that's part of the culture which I'm calling socialized medicine, but we have to even dig deeper into the concepts. Who said it was okay for someone else to decide whether or not your care is warranted? And so when you talk about more money, more money has to rely on the concepts and the culture that will determine how that money is used. And so if you never have a conversation about the culture and the concepts, more money just goes to make more of what you already have. And so that's why I think money keeps failing. You talk a little bit about the way government's involvement tends to shape or, I guess, distort, you know, the role of healthcare. And, and you talk about this weirdly one-sided employer-employee relationship where government wants the control of an employer, but not the overall responsibility for the company's output. And the company in this case would just be the healthcare system of whichever province. And you talk about, I mean, in a lot of ways, the, de the demise of self-regulation. And what do you mean by that? So again, I don't know why you're asking such great questions. This is not a simple question you've just asked. Sorry, I'll, I'll go next time with, you know, like, what's your favorite story from the emergency room or <laughs> something right. like yeah. that? Come on, give me the fluffball questions. No, the, you are asking exactly the right question right now. Um, Self-regulation, maybe I'll just focus on that for 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. Self-regulation -regu is, is, was supposed to be a process where you could get both sides working together in very, to, to solve complex issues. And so there's a, a huge body of, re of, of, of research on this, a bunch of literature that shows that you can't just have a shame and blame approach. Otherwise, people go quiet. You won't actually solve problems that are meaningful to patients. So you need to have a collaborative approach as opposed to a oppositional approach. What happens, though, is as time goes on and you get more and more regulations, you have this regulatory ratchet, which gets tighter and tighter and tighter. Both sides lawyer up. You know, I need to know exactly where every comma and period is in a particular piece of regulation so that I can fight it and both sides fight. Well, the patient gets lost in the middle of that. And maybe I'll end with this one comment also. No business or organization lobbies government for a new law to help improve quality, service, and efficiency. You don't see Tim Hortons lobbying for a new law to improve the efficiency of Tim Hortons. And maybe, I guess I shouldn't even have mentioned the company name, but you know what I'm saying. Whereas we do that all the time in Medicare. We pass a new law to help improve access or efficiency or quality or, 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 or to prevent queue jumping. 
this is absurd from the outside. You can't run a knowledge-based industry by passing legislation. I, I don't think you can even improve a, uh, a factory, uh, you know, a car manufacturing plant by passing legislation. So I hope that sort of touches on your question, but brilliant question. I mean, I think I spent probably 100 pages trying to answer that question in my book. Yeah, and and in, in a lot of ways, I kind of uh, kind of absconded with my requirement to summarize it by just asking you to do it. So I appreciate you doing so uh, as adequately as, as you did. As we wind down here, then I'll, I'll give you not a fluffball question, but a more general one, which is, what do you want the real takeaway of this to be? Because I, I know you did say that you want to diagnose in this book, and you're planning another book that will deal with the prescriptions, pardon the pun, and in a way that you said would be very difficult for people to take had they not read this one laying out the problem so clearly. So what is the message you want to give people with this? Well, I think the first message is to right back to the start. How are patients experiencing the system right now? And I, I opened the book with a description, with a story, actually, it's a true story, uh, about a patient who was, who needed to go to the bathroom. He was sitting in a hallway bed. And this, this guy was copus mentis, a clear head, smart, super nice guy. And he, and he, he needed to go to the bathroom, he had to go pee and finally get someone's attention. They, they, they rush by, they're rushing off to do something else. And they stop and they say, well, you have a diaper. And we need to just pause and think about that for a second. Why is it okay in our system for people to be even to, for that thought, even to even enter your mind, you have a diaper. Okay. So you work that through. So you go in your diaper. Now you're sitting in a wet diaper. Who changes your diaper? Where do you get cleaned up? You're in a hallway. There's no privacy. How do you deal with that situation? And so I could give story after story about no blankets, no beds, no pillows, no, you know, sitting on a rubber mattress. So we need to focus first, I think, on patients and are we treating them with dignity? Do the ideas within the system lead to dignified care? Now, people who are very supportive of socialized medicine will say, we can't blame that on socialized medicine. And to a point there, Right. But I argue in the book that actually the whole system of thinking underlying Medicare right now leads to those kinds of behaviors inevitably. So we need to face up to the ideas behind it and say, well, what other ideas might we think about first? And so I talk about obviously focusing on a patient, but I'll just give you one idea from the from the end of the book. Relationships. How has medicine solved the issue of access to fantastic care for 3,000 years? Well, it's the same way you solve your problem when you have a plumbing problem or an accounting problem or a legal problem. Everybody wants to know a guy. Everybody wants to know a gal, right? Do you know a guy who can help me with this? I'm in trouble. I need help. And that's what patients want. They want to know somebody somewhere. They need a relationship because within relationship, you place expectations on the other person. If you and I have a relationship and you say, Sean, I'm, I'm in the emergent and like no one, everybody's ignoring me. I'm like, I, I can't just say, okay, ah, oh, it's Andrew. I'm hanging out. I'm not going to talk to Andrew. I'm not answering his call. I have to answer your call. I have to respond. I have to call and say, hey, my buddy Andrew's in the emergent. It, it seems like you forgot about him. And then someone checks and, oh yeah, they did forget about you and your name fell off the tracking board or whatever. So I think starting with a refocus on relationships is just one small idea that we're, 
we're if we make sure everybody gets a great relationship, then we'll start seeing a more uh, robust focus on giving the care and dignity of care back to patients. But that's only one tiny bit. And really, again, you've asked me to to give the answer for the whole next book. So. Yeah, and it is really that distinction between my doctor versus the doctor. And in a lot of cases, the distinction between a relationship someone might have with a family doctor cultivated over years and just, you know, whichever resident, you know, was able to come by for 90 seconds at the bedside in the emergency room. So I do think there's a, an important distinction there and, and that ownership is key. So I'm glad you wrote the book. I look forward to the third part, When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing, Dr. Sean Watley joins me on the line now. Dr. Watley, thank you so much for coming on and Merry Christmas to you as well. And Merry Christmas to you and thank you for making time for this important topic on your show. I really appreciate it, Andrew. That does it for me, not just for this show, but also for all of our shows prior to Christmas. So I do say to all of you a big thank you for tuning in, listening in on whichever platform you are partaking in this program in. I hope you and your family have a absolutely wonderful Christmas. Merry Christmas to you all. Thank you. God bless and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.